Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I am joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Imogen, hello, how hello. are you? Hello, I'm very well. What have you been up to in this very hot time? Oh God, just trying to find some clothes that fit <laughs> and that don't make me feel completely hot it's and quite sweated. Horror. It's quite difficult, isn't it? Hot and sweated and cross. Yes. Do you think it's that? Do you think it's the rosé or the lockdown? I think it might be the rosé as well. I, as yes, I'm yeah. There's nothing nice. How much is in a bottle of rosé? Do you think? Well, alcohol-wise. No, no, <laughs> calories. I don't care about the alcohol. <laughs> it's calories. Oh, about a thousand. Oh God. And do you, if you put ice in it, does it make it less fat? You know? Oh, yes, yes, that obviously, is, yes. Yeah. It's slimming with ice in it. It's slimming with the ice. <laughs> anyway, coming up on today's show, we'll be asking Vanessa Coffey, an intimacy coordinator, why her job has been in the spotlight recently. Who else can't wait for proper menus to return to restaurants? Tech expert Caramel Quinn will try and convince me that QR code menus are actually great and here to stay. Plus, best-selling author Wendy Holden will be here discussing her new book, The Governess. But first, Shamima Begum is back in the news. She's ditched the hijab and donned a Nike baseball cap, a leather one, actually, for her most recent campaign to return to the UK. We'll speak with extremist expert Emma Webb. So this is a little bit serious. Shamima Begum. Yes, I know. I mean, part of me feels sorry for her and part of me really doesn't. No. And that's what's so incredibly difficult about it. Because, I mean, she was a young woman who made a massive mistake. But at the same time, the mistake was really massive. It was massive, yes. And uh, and also, at the same time, she has lost three children. Oh, God. Which is quite hard work. Yes, awful. (laughs) Um, I mean... And the thing is, though, that she's in this refugee camp and she's uh, she's she keeps doing interviews with Western journalists, most of whom are blokes. Yes, who all seem to be sort of fall under her yeah. spell. I mean, yeah. she is very attractive and obviously quite eloquent yes. and smart, but they all seem to find her as some sort of cause celeb. They do. They? And the, the latest one is her saying, can I come home? Pretty please, pretty, pretty please. And she stopped wearing her Islamic dress. And it's funny how the attitudes towards her seem to be changing since she did that. I mean, whoever's advising her, if anyone is advising her, is doing it quite well. I mean, she now just looks like... A normal girl, yeah. you know, on the streets of Brent. Pretty, very yeah. pretty pretty girl, you know, in her early 20s. Yeah, yeah, yes, I agree. But I mean, it is famously difficult to to de-radicalise somebody. It is, and she did, she's not covered herself in glory. She hasn't, I mean, she, she did go off and join a death cult and she has not shown any real remorse. No. The only remorse she's really shown is for her own situation. Yes. That's the thing that I find a little, uh, that's what I can't really cope with, is the fact that the person she's most sorry for is herself. Yes. Because what she's done is she's ruined her life by doing something really stupid. But at no point has she said, this organisation that I joined was completely, you know, disgusting and they did terrible things. And she hasn't condemned as far as I know, the actions of Islamic State. No. She's just basically sitting there going, oh, I'm really sorry, I did a stupid thing. Can I come home now? Can I go home? And also, can um, I come home pretty please? Yeah. It sounds really the sort of, it's almost like saying, can you get me some ice cream yeah. from the fridge while you're standing infantile. up? It's, it's infantile, yeah. I, I suppose, it's a very odd way of saying it. Yeah. She should say, I'm, I'm deeply sorry yeah. for what I've done. Exactly. I've called terrible offence. You know, what I did was unforgivable. Yeah. I would absolutely like to come home. I mean, I think the thing is, what I think when I look at her is I, I sort of, she's almost like on the verge of becoming a sort of internet influencer star yeah, it's a, a bit weird and yeah a martyr. The, and i the, think it's very that would be very wrong i think yeah and if you make her a sort of martyr to mm. justice then then that's a massive mistake i think she should be literally I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised in. if she didn't suddenly start doing tiktoks you know <laughs> <laughs> no trust me i really think i, I think that's where she is <laughs> and i mean 
that would be, you know, and the problem with doing... Oh, my God. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, she's, she's obviously quite sort of... Well, she's very media savvy. Yeah, she I mean, is. It's, if, 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 you know, if she's, if she's capable of changing her image so radically mm-hmm. and, you know, making all these reporters see her side of the story, mm. I mean, she's very beguiling mm. as, a, as a character. Mm. So maybe, yes, maybe TikTok beckons. Yes, so let's hope not. Anyway, so we're going to have a chat with someone who's an actual expert on this. So we're joined by Emma Webb, Associate Fellow at Think Tank Civitas and Extremist Expert to talk about Shamima Begum. Emma, hi. Good afternoon. I'd love to know what you think about Shamima. I mean, Imogen and I are slightly ambivalent about her because we, we sort of understand that she's a, she was a young girl and, and you know, she's had a terrible time, etc. But she do, it does all feel rather sort of opportunistic. And the fact that she keeps sort of being interviewed by fawning male journalists who all seem to fall mad in love with her and then asking to come back and saying pretty please pretty please should we believe her or you know are we being a bit harsh when we are are deeply suspicious as I suspect Imogen and I probably are I think it's right to be suspicious and I, I imagine that with the British public the pretty please would have fallen flat on its face um you know we've seen instances before with people like Usman Khan who uh expressed you know, his desire to enter into a de-radicalisation programme and then when he was allowed on licence to go to uh, the conference that was organised in London Bridge then went on to kill two innocent young people. So I think the British public are very alert to the dangers of extremists falsely presenting as being de-radicalised and as she says that she doesn't think that she actually needs to be rehabilitated um, and that she might be able to help de-radicalise others. You know, I think people will see this as being opportunistic and her story and, and the, her comments don't really seem to hang very well together. And when you look at, uh, like you mentioned, the male journalists who are interviewing her, giving her a very easy time of it, and it almost looks as if, you know, she could very easily be given her own sort of chat show in, in the way that she's being um, talked about and treated the way that her fashion choices and her pop culture references are being discussed, um, and even having body language experts mm. assessing her changes in posture and their self-confidence in the way she presents herself. Yes, I mean, one sense is that sort of her attractiveness is, is a big factor in all of this, and and I think that the fact that she's a girl is... is is you know fueling all this and I mean I just you know I sort of I, I worry that she's going to sort of end up on TikTok and mm, become, becoming mm. a sort of global influencer and 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 and, and it's becoming uh, sort of fetishistic isn't it it's very odd mm. and she's obviously playing on that because you know at the beginning she was fully covered and veiled and all of that and was very much you know and now there she is in tight trousers and, and nail polish flirting basically you know she's done quite the manipulative yes, individual I, yeah. I think so and, and let's not forget that you know she she um I mean yes 15 year old girls do do very stupid things but they don't all run off and join murder death cults and she has shown no as far as I know and you will correct me if I'm wrong but she has shown no actual remorse for anything that ISIS have done or did and bearing in mind that you know that they have practically eliminated the Yazidis you know Mm. the the stories of, of rape camps and all of this kind of she's she's spoken about none of that she's not said at any stage that she regrets any of that behavior it seems to me that the only thing she really cares about is herself and getting herself out of this refugee camp and back to you know nice old blighty where no doubt she will be properly looked after there is a strange loss of moral perspective on this like you say you know that she chose to join an organization that has committed genocide that has committed horrendous atrocities against the Yazidis there's 
you know, credible intelligence from Dutch and American intelligence agencies suggesting that she had been involved with the uh, Hizbah, which mm. was uh, an Al- the Alcanza Brigade women's police force in ISIS that were known for using uh, a sort of medieval torture device called a biter to take the flesh out of um, mm. clip flesh from women who weren't dressed appropriately. Oh my gosh. Um, other reports suggesting that maybe she had sewn uh, people into a suicide uh, bomb into their suicide vests Um, and regardless you know at 15 years old to go and choose to travel to Islamic State when she traveled after it was all over the news that journalists and aid workers like Alan Henning and James Foley had been beheaded Mm. suggests that she knew exactly what she was going to join and actually if you want to to look at the way that she's you know being approached the way that she's being discussed and and the how the interviews are being conducted there seems to be a certain naivety around it as well as that loss of moral perspective mm. because she's not really being questioned on the inconsistencies in the way that her story has developed it does look like it's just a cynical attempt mm. to get herself back here because bear in mind that she decided to stay with Islamic State until the very final hour when the caliphate fell apart. She Mm. actually said herself that she decided to leave sort of at the 11th hour because Mm. things had gotten too bad. She'd said that she had enjoyed herself, Mm. um, that she didn't regret it. Um, And she had said that she'd travelled there having seen videos on the news and on the internet Mm. about what Islamic State were doing. So at the age of 15, which is five years above the age of criminal responsibility Mm. in this country, it's totally wrong to suggest that you know, just because now she's making a few references to, you know, the Friends reunion and other popular Mm. culture Mm -hmm. references, that we should suddenly, you know, be hugely sympathetic to her because you have to remember that the decision to strip her of her citizenship was a national security decision Mm. because only one in ten returning fighters have actually been prosecuted. Mm. Um, And so this is about more than just her um, and it's about more than just this sort of naive sympathising with, as you say, a young, attractive girl. Emma, is she being advised by somebody? It almost sounds like she's got some sort of PR coach making her into a... uh poster girl for rehabilitation it certainly looks that way if you remember when she did that uh, interview not too long ago with the union jack pillow behind her and fairy lights Mm. um, and her sort of image has gradually developed i don't know whether or not she's being advised uh, in terms of her own pr but she's certainly receiving legal advice and she isn't giving interviews to any old journalists i believe Mm. the telegraph actually were refused an interview with her so this interview is actually quite quite a rare one that she's she's allowed in so she's obviously taking legal advice and it will all be presumably with the angle of trying to um, get this decision by the Home Secretary overturned by trying to present her as, you know, the girl next door rather than somebody who chose to go and join a genocidal proto-terrorist state. Emma, is there any... I mean, part of me thinks that actually we should put her on trial and, you know, actually examine forensically these accusations against her, which, which I had also heard about. I mean, is there some mechanism by which we can do that? So th- this is a real difficulty, actually, and, and this is one of the reasons why I believe the Home Secretary made the decision that he did. As I said before, you know, one in ten returning fighters have been prosecuted. That mm. is a very, very low amount of, uh, of people. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not easy to collect admissible evidence mm. from a conflict zone like Syria, mm. particularly for women, you know, whose faces are covered and so on. Mm. So the chances of 
of her coming here and then being prosecuted and facing the justice that most people would say that she deserves is very slim. Mm. And I think we should be very concerned by this sort of strange moral distortion that's taking place because she really is being painted as the victim. Mm. And and as I say, with with uh, terrorists like Usman Khan, we've seen that people have presented themselves as being de-radicalised before. And, you know, we should take the security risk that the Home Secretary took the decision on the basis of. We should take that very seriously. Mm. And I think it is very concerning that she's being sort of almost painted as this figure of popular culture. You could easily imagine her doing something like going into the Big Brother house no, exactly. rather than somebody who was complicit in the crimes of a regime that has committed the most awful atrocities, as you mentioned, against Yazidis, against Shia Muslims mm. and Christians and others. So, yeah, I think that um, we shouldn't allow ourselves to sort of have the wool pulled over our eyes on this one. Mm. Thank you, Emma. Fascinating. Lovely to talk to you. And I will, you know, let's watch this space. I'm sure she'll be back. It's a job few of us have been aware of until this year when Michaela Cole dedicated her BAFTA to I May Destroy You's Intimacy Coordinator. But the job where experts choreograph love scenes on screen has become important, apparently, in the age of Me Too. Hashtag Me Too, I should say. So Imogen, intimacy coordination. Yeah, well, mainly it's the name I find offensive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just say what it is, a shag doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I'm being facetious. No, because they don't actually shag. That's the whole point. They I just know. they have to wear flesh-coloured pants and things. No, I mean, you can see why. I mean, I think because a lot of these television has got so incredibly racy. Well, the thing is, that's the thing. I think the problem with these intimacy coordinators is they encourage... Basically, if you're an actor now, you can't say no. Mm. You can't say, actually, no, I don't want to have simulated sex with 23 people because I don't like that. And they'll go, well, yes, you can, because we'll get you an intimacy coordinator. And so it'll be fine. Well, because do you remember the great long episodes of Sex and the City where they used to all have sex with their bras on? Yeah. Do you remember Sarah Jessica Parker was always, I think that's what everyone did. Yeah. Doesn't everyone have sex with their bra on? Sex with their bra on. (laughs) So uh, I do think, I think, I mean, it was normal people was was famed for having very, very uh, hardcore scenes. And Bridgerton. So I do think... In order to get ever increasing ratings, yeah. they're, they're being asked to do ever increasingly difficult things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of the sex scenes now are basically porn. Mm. I mean, you're not having the sort of you don't have the sort of full money shots, but they are. I mean, they are basically soft porn, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So I, I can see the reason for them. I just think I do think the name is yeah. really annoying. Yeah. Um, but also, this the whole point is that is is that these intimacy coordinators. In fact, the one who won, the one who was mentioned by uh, Michaela Cole, who's called Ellie something, I can't remember her surname. Anyway, uh, she says that every set should have them now. I mean, right. that's, I mean, you know, your husband's a TV producer. Mm. So has he suddenly now got to f- employ a full-time intimacy coordinator? Well, he does comedy, so there isn't very much sex in that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but I think, uh, I mean, you know, there are famously stories of women being exploited within the film totally. industry. You know, yeah. I mean, Noel Clark and the allegations against him. Mm. Um, you know, I think there are lots of situations where lots of actresses have felt very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, that, that the famous Bertolucci thing where, yeah. where, the, the, the actress was, you know, fake raped and yeah. then he because he wanted to see the real terror in her eyes. All that sort of stuff. I mean, I think, you know. But then the, the thing is, the other thing is, is there is a certain, I mean, you know, there, there used to be sorts of things as chemistry between actors. Yeah. And I do think that that 
is an, is an important part of why something works. Yes, I mean, it's, it would be interesting to find out whether it's just just choreography yeah. or or where where you have to put the little piece of paper yeah. between the parts, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and, and because also, if if it becomes incredibly formulaic, it's basically yeah. like watching somebody do the foxtrot. No, quite. it's just not that exciting. So anyway, we are now going to be joined by Vanessa Coffey, who is in fact an intimacy coordinator. So intimacy coaches, they're the hot new topic. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, tell us, how do you become an intimacy coach? Well, there's lots of different ways into um, being an intimacy coordinator. So my path was a little unusual um, in that I was a lawyer before I retrained as an actor and also Mm -hmm. had a background in dance. That's not the typical way into becoming an intimacy coordinator. The best way, of course, is to obviously get onset experience. But before you do that, any of us would recommend that people have mental health first aid training, LGBTQ plus awareness. There are lots of things that people need to do in order to be sort of set, ready to go on. Can I just ask you a quick question? Is it like choreographing a ballet or something? How do you actually go about getting the two people together? And and also, are there lots of sort of special little bits of pieces like sort of paper or special pants and things that you're supposed to wear? Yes. So the two parts to that. Um, so the first part would always be that we have a conversation first with the, the director and the producers to find out what it is that the scene should look and feel like, what they're going for, the specifics of how the scene is going to be shot. So we might talk camera angles um, and then having a conversation with each of the actors separately to find out what their boundaries are and any limitations we need to be aware of, what their thoughts are coming into the scene as well about why this moment is particularly pivotal for, for those two characters. And then once we've got all of that really useful information, when we're in a rehearsal, we can start to put together choreography that um, that plays into both what the directors and producers want and also that respects the boundaries of the actor. And as part of that, we'd also be rehearsing using those things that you're talking about there. So the specific um, types of modesty underwear that that are in place um, and barriers as well. So the, the two things really. And do those things, do the barriers make a big difference, do you think? A huge difference. And and do you find that the reaction is different from men to women? I mean, I, is, is this something that predominantly women want and or, or is it both sexes? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because what I, I've been finding more recently is that it's, it's both genders who are mm. asking for it, where I think even probably a couple of years ago, it, it did feel more female-led, um, whereas now I think because you know, men uh, are very aware as well that they don't want to cross a boundary for mm. the, the female partner in the scene, that they're equally really concerned about having those sorts of things in place to make sure that they're being really respectful of, of both sets of boundaries. And the, those sorts of barriers do make a huge difference because then we don't have things like pubic bone to pubic bone contact in, in moments where, you know, we've got characters who are thrusting. Um, it, it makes a huge difference when actually what you're feeling is pillow is cushioning between the mm. two of you so that you can mm. be responsive to that mm-hmm. rather than to anything else. And do, do you think they've made the sex scenes better as a result for the viewer or is it just more comfortable for the actors? Obviously I'm biased. I think it's made a huge difference to the way um, the sex scene actually looks and feels now. I think they're more realistic, the scenes that we're, that we're seeing. Um, they're, they're sometimes more beautiful it depends what sort of the look and feel is that somebody's going for within one of those scenes. But I, I do think um, rather than them feeling like an add-on, 
uh, as I used to see, or that's my perception of, of where some of those scenes were coming from previously, like, oh, now's the time for the sex scene to go in. We're actually seeing narrative through those moments. Mm. That was Vanessa Coffey, an intimacy coordinator for film, TV and theatre, or as Imogen would like to call her, a shag doctor. <laughs> this is a massive bugbear of mine. QR codes instead of menus. What's that all about? I went and had a burger with my son the other day and I sat there like a sort of ancient person waiting for someone to bring me the menu and then some school leaver came up to me and told me that I had to scan it. Well, see, the thing about that is I've, I've tried to drill into my children no phones at the table. Yeah, exactly. So, it's the height of rudeness, getting the, your phone out. The first thing that you do is bring out your telephone yeah. and then, of course, you, you sort of squint. You can't see anywhere. Well, I can't see anything without my glasses. No. So I have to be doubly humiliated because I have yeah. to get my phone out then I have to get my reading glasses out. And, but it's also... There's something about having a menu in your hand that I really like. Yeah, it's not very sexy either. No, no, because, you know, in the olden days, you could sort of, you could point to your partner's menu and suggest that they have the, oh. the oysters or something. Yes. In or, a, or you could flirt behind the menu <laughs> and hold, just have your eyes peeking the The language over the top. of menus, yes. Yeah. Or you could look slightly wistful. Yes, or you could anyway, fan yourself You can't with do it. any of that with a QR code. No, and your phone. Anyway, here to change Vine's mind is technology journalist Carmel Quinn, who is going to try and convince me that QR codes are worth my time. So take it away. Well, I quite like the new normal. I am 49, and when I go to a restaurant, I definitely want to know that I have a table booked. And right now, I want that table to be outside because that's safer. So I really love that on these apps or websites, you can see your options and book immediately. Between you and me, I also like the fact that apps like Open Table let me say if it's a special occasion. So when I go on a date, one of us has our birthday and we get a free dessert or a free cocktail or something like that. There's always something to look forward to. Um, and there are apps, like you say, like Square, that have QR codes, let you order the food and simply pay and leave when you're done. I'm not a huge fan of that myself, but I think whatever works for you, some people love that and other people would rather, like you say, pour over a menu. Um, I think that um, for some people it's part of the experience, but it should be there as an option. Um, it's also not just about us diners. So we have to remember that the hospitality industry has really suffered through the pandemic and they can take fewer covers in the restaurants right now. So if it helps our favorite restaurants to survive, then that matters too. And the clever apps like this make the staff safer which benefits us all but as ever with technology it has to be a tool that works brilliantly and makes our lives easier but yes i do like the new normal way of eating out and these apps are here to stay and i think that's a good thing oh caramel i'm really not actually well thank you anyway thank you very much and it don't was forget really it's your birthday next time effort. okay every time <laughs> good point yes it is <laughs> Thanks, Caramel. Lovely to speak to you. You too. That was Caramel Quinn, who, I'm sad to say, did not change Vine's mind. You're listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine. You can visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or me at WestminsterWag. Best-selling author Wendy Holden's latest book, The Governess, which is out in paperback, gives an insider's view of life in the royal household as told through the true story of Marion Crawford or Crawfee, who was the nanny to Elizabeth and Margaret for 17 years. So, Wendy, can you tell us a bit about your book? Well, The Governess is a story of 
Marion Crawford, who was the Queen's teacher. She came to join the royal family when the Queen was five, and she stayed with the royal family until the Queen was married, so basically for 17 years. And so she was with them during some of the most seismic events of the 20th century, such as the abdication, such as the coronation, such as the Second World War, all of which she spent in Windsor Castle with a little princess. Of what was she known as? She had a nickname, rather like she the Queen's nickname. Crawfee. 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 And of course, we all, know, we all know about the Queen's nickname now, Lilibet. Lilibet, yes. yes, exactly. And throughout the governess, she's known as Lilibet because um, this was, she was known um, by, as Lilibet by the whole family. And so it wasn't long before uh, Marion Crawford called her that too, uh, which is a sign that she was accepted into the inner circle. But Crawfee herself had to have a nickname and mm. it was the Queen who decided to call her Crawfee because uh, Marion and, and Crawford was too long. So that was a sign that she was accepted. And, Wendy, uh, and Wendy, can I just ask you, how did you come across the story? I found it in a second-hand bookshop in Northumberland and it literally fell from the shelves at my feet. Literally fell. It was like fate. And I picked it up and, and opened it because I'd, I'd always wanted to write a book about the Windsors. I could see, mm. I've always been able to see that they were like characters from, from, a, from a novel. And this is before The Crown even appeared. So, you know, obviously that, that, that's, that's now sort of a fact, an established fact. But at the time, I, I really wanted to do something. And so I couldn't find the right way in. And I found this book. It's called The Little Princesses. It's the autobiography that Marion Crawford wrote about her years with the royal family. And on the very first page, you open it and she says... I didn't intend to work with royalty. I wanted to work in the slums of Edinburgh and teach poor children. And that was it. I, was, I just thought, how did this happen? How did a woman who wanted to work with, with the, the very poorest in society end up with the very richest? So that was what sort of brought me into the story. And it's really interesting because she, you know, she was very progressive. She wasn't a sort of slony nanny type. She was a, a really progressive woman who trained as a teacher at a time when training for a profession was quite new. She was quite feminist, she was a little bit left-wing, and she you know, didn't really want to work with, with, with the upper classes at all. And so that, there was an interesting sort of dynamic there already. And so she went down and she took all her progressive ideas with her, and she felt that the Princess Elizabeth and her sister Princess Margaret, when she started to join the, the schoolroom, had a really remote life. They were completely cut off from, from, from normal life, and this wasn't... The, the way things should be. Marion Crawford felt Crawford felt they should be they should be taken mm. out into the world, and so she took them, you know, um, on the tube, <laughs> and she took them shopping at Woolworths, and she took them swimming, and so tried to bring some normal life into into these sort of very privileged, very remote ro royal existences, mm. all of which was really new and quite daring and quite revolutionary. So there were so many reasons why it was a great story, and, and they're just some of them. But Wendy, it doesn't end beautifully, though, does it? That's it's it doesn't very end beautifully. Sad. No, that it doesn't end beautifully. No, it's it's a really sad ending, given how glorious and, and wonderful the the the, uh, the early and, and the middle years were. What happened was when the Queen got married to Prince Philip, and and actually, you know, Crawford was there when they when they met. You know, she was there at all these seismic moments, all these important moments mm. when they met. Um, she, so so when Princess Elizabeth met, uh, left to get married. Crawford more she, she she stayed for a couple of years looking after Princess Margaret, but it didn't really work out. Princess Margaret did not want to be um, in a in a schoolroom with a governess, and she wanted to be out in the town. So um, Crawford finally left, and she'd put her private life on hold 
for 17 years to, to work for the royal family. She hadn't been able to leave, even though she'd wanted to a couple of times. So she married badly. She married someone who wasn't very trustworthy, somebody who exploited her and encouraged her to write this book, the one I found, The Little Princesses. Mm. And she thought that the royal family would be fine with it. And she was persuaded by the publishers that the royal family were fine with it, but the royal family were not fine with it at all. And when mm. it was published, they ostracized her, completely ostracized her, for the rest of her life, she never, they never spoke to her again, and it was really sad, not least because um, Crawfee, who, as I said earlier, was Scottish, at least I think I said that, she trained in Edinburgh, grew up in Edinburgh, went back to Scotland, went to live in Aberdeen, actually, which is where mm. her husband was from, and she bought a house right by the road to Balmoral. Mm. So every year, the royal cars, the royal, the royal, the royal convoy would go past with gleaming limousines, and every year she hoped that they would stop and they would... Um, have a cup of tea and, and forgive her. And does the queen was the queen nice to her at least or not? Was she was she no, not, not able at all. To... The, queen, the queen was as bad as the rest. You know, mm. she completely she, 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 she there was no olive branch. There was no invitation to her own coronation. There was no invitation to to anything. Mm. So Megan beware, um, basically. Then yeah, watch you, out, Megan. <laughs> Megan beware. Oh my goodness, yeah, come, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Pulling up all drawbridges. <laughs> Well, there was there was a slight a slight indication that the Queen might have uh, have changed tack slightly. Um, for her 90th birthday, there was a few bits and pieces of, of material released, including this little bit of film of um, the of Marion Crawford uh, Crawford and the little princesses dancing on board a ship. They're doing the Lambeth Walk, and it's quite an amazing <laughs> bit of film because Crawford's really tall and the girls are really small, and they're doing the Lambeth Walk on board the um, whichever royal ship it was, and. Um, but I think the fact that that was released shows that there, there may be some kind of um, acceptance that maybe she wasn't treated terribly fairly. Maybe, maybe with the passage of time, you know, wisdom Maybe the passage of time, exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, the governess is, is I think it's, it's, it really brings this woman out of the mm. shadows. You know, her story's been buried for 70 years, mm. and, I, and I really felt, you know, completely compelled to, to mm. write it because it's so amazing and, and so and It so is. It's a fabulous and, book. It's a fabulous book, Wendy. It really is. Thank it's brilliant. What are you much. doing at the moment? Are you doing another one? Yes, my next book is going to be about Wallace Simpson. That's coming mm. out in August. There are lots of parallels, aren't there, at the moment? Yes, oh, Wallace and, yes. Megan and Wallace. <laughs> there are there are a few. There are there, there are a few definitely. It's not quite the, the same story, but it's definitely they're, they're definitely both very thin. Yes, and yes, exactly. Both very thin, both very dark, both American, both divorced. And also, but because this is a trilogy I'm writing about difficult women oh, in the brilliant. house of Windsor. So you have to guess. You have to guess who my um, Margaret. Book's about. Margaret. No. Oh. No. 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 Hang on. Who a could it be? Anne. No. Much more. It kind of. It's, she's hiding in plain sight in your minds. Megan. Diana. <laughs> oh. oh God! Yes. <laughs> So it's great. So, so I've written. So I've written so you're doing, the governess. So, so you're doing. You're doing. Okay. So basically, you're doing difficult women in the royal in the royal world. Exactly, D difficult women in the house of Windsor, outsiders oh, in, in in the royal family, and um, yeah. So it's the princess. It's, yeah. That's the Diana one. The Duchess yeah. is the is the, is the Wallace one, and the governess is is. Oh, one great! About, about Corfu, yeah. Okay. So, so, Great. So I can't exactly. wait for so those. these are women who all come from outside to a, to a greater or lesser extent, and they kind of blow apart the Windsors in various different ways. Thanks, Wendy. So lovely to talk to you, and um, hopefully we'll get you back to talk about the next one, the yes. Duchess. Now we're joined by our resident astrologer, Teresa Chung, who is a dreams, spirituality, and a ritual expert. So, Teresa, this week we want to know, what do the stars predict for our hopes in the Euros? Football! 
football. We're going to talk football. Yay, football. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. So we thought we'd get you to have a look at, at Gareth Southgate's uh, chart okay. and also Ari Kane and also the lovely Marcus Rashford. Um, apparently they're okay. all important key footballers in the football. They are. They are. Now, Gareth, you mm. could not ask for a better astrological date of birth than Gary Southgate. Really? He's the perfect coach. Virgo, the calm, the perfectionist. It's not all about him. It's about the team and, and finessing the team. He really, I mean, I call it the day of the iron butterfly people born that day. They are absolutely really good, great coach there. Mm. Um, that, so he, it, the stars bode very well. So that's that. looking good for England's chances. Tick. Yes, tick. tick. I, I, could I just say awful? I thought he was a player. I just realised it says England manager. <laughs> He's the one who wears the waistcoat. I, was, he I, was, waistcoat I was looking at time. it thinking, 50? That's a bit old for an international <laughs> football player. <laughs> He's the voice of calm and resilience. Good. He won't oh. let them give up. Very He's good. Absolutely perfect. And 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 being a Virgo, it's the, the perfect sign. And the, the captain, Harry Kane, now he's a fiery Leo. He's the confidence, the flair, and the yes. drive. But what's really interesting about the Euros is it, of course, it all happening in the sign of Cancer. Right. So I was looking at teams that have got a lot of water signs in them, and I'm I'm not believe that the England team has so many water signs, Pisces mm. especially. Mm. So that's a sign of great good luck. I mean, I actually feel very positive astrologically about the the chances of of, of, of doing really well in Europe Ooh. because of the lineup um, and all the waters. And um, you know, I, when Gareth Southgate calls me up to you know team for the final, I think they should have a team <laughs> astrologer. I think it's a very important. I would say look at those water signs. Yeah. you know, because um, we're in Cancer. Cancers don't tend to get on so much with the more logical air signs like Libra and Aquarius, but Looking at the England squad, it's you know so many water signs this this year. It's amazing. What's and Marcus Rashford? He's thirty well, first of October. So what's that? That's he's a Scorpio. Oh. There's water. They're very sexy Scorpio That's... men, aren't they? Everyone always tells me. <laughs> Dark and intense and yeah. deep. Yeah, and he, he, he perfect. But I think a game changer. If you know, I, I think he's prob- they're probably going to use the same winning um, team for Croatia. But mm. you know, look if Gareth just look at water signs bringing them in because they're playing in the sign of cancer mm. um you know and, and cancer is all about emotion and empathy so what, what, it, what are, are you thinking for what are you thinking for friday english england versus scotland it's not looking good for scotland is it going to do i i think it all bodes well looking at it depends of course on the lineup and the combination but go for those water signs mm. um keep doing what they're doing i think it's very very positive indeed and playing in that, that sun sign of cancer, which we come into on June the 20th, is all about emotion and empathy. Yeah. And you've got a lot of players in there who, are, who have got a lot of, you know, water signs in there. So I think that's really good. Good. And not too many of the, the more logical um, signs in there. Because I think they're going to have to be very intuitive and take a leap, leap of faith and, and risks. Yeah. So um, it bodes well. It bodes really well. I'm excited about it. That was our resident astrologer, Teresa Chung. If you enjoy listening to The Female Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Westminster Wag. And we won't be back next week, you'll be relieved to know, as I am after the Chalk <laughs> History Festival. So hopefully uh, we'll see you. Well, no, not see you, but 
I don't know, speak to you, make a noise into the microphone on June the 30th. You've been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Thank you.